This week, a lecture about disability in early America. Professor Laurel Dane of North Carolina University discusses how disability was defined after the American Revolution. People um, with intellectual um, as well as physical incapacities, actually, as well, were also placed, were all placed under guardianship. Um, and n- not all of them, but some, some were placed under guardianship um, if their family members or other community members requested it. Um, so this act is from North Carolina in 1836. Um, those described as lunatics or idiots were assigned legal guardians um, who managed their legal, political, financial affairs. More on how federal laws impacted disabled people after this. Um, So, hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Disability in American History and Culture. Um, It's great to see you all um, and hope you had great spring breaks. Um, So, our plan for the day. We're going to start with a review. Uh, I assume that you haven't spent your spring break thinking about our class. Um, So, this is designed to just get you back on track. Um, to think about some of the most important themes and ideas that we've discussed in our class so far. Um, Then I'll lecture on the topic for today's class, which is disability in the early United States. We will talk about how disability was defined in the years after the American Revolution, uh, how ableism shaped early national law, and how some disabled people push back and fought for greater access and equality. Okay, um, so for our review, our class began um, by thinking really complexly about the meaning and experience of disability. So we discussed two primary models for conceptualizing disability. The first was the medical model of disability. And this is probably the most common understanding of disability in America today. Um, In this model, disability is viewed as an individual problem. Right. So if someone has an impairment, um, say a a limb difference, a a visual limitation, this is seen as their disability. In the logic of the medical model, disabilities are probably problems that need to be fixed uh, primarily by Western medicine. So the goal of the medical model is to fix the individual, right, to fix the individual's impairment in order to fix or uh, eradicate disability. The social model of disability stands in stark contrast to the medical model. It was developed by disabled people, disability rights activists, and it suggests instead that society disables people. People with impairments are disabled by the fact that they are excluded from full participation in mainstream society, right? That they experience these physical, uh, political, social, attitudinal barriers to equality. So according to the social model, the negative negative effects of these socially constructed limitations far outweighs the negative effects of any physical intellectual impairment. As a result, the social model is focused on fixing ableism, fixing prejudice and discrimination in in society, not fixing disabled people. So from this beginning, we went on to critique both the medical and social models. We decided that the medical model was pretty problematic uh, in the blame and the stigma that it placed on individuals, the ways that it viewed disability as an individual problem. We thought the social model was a lot better, um, but that there were still some drawbacks. And this primary drawback was um, rooted to the social models uh, glossing over or maybe even um, a denial of the real physical, intellectual, sensory mobility limitations that people experience. 
many of you pointed out that not all disabilities can be alleviated through social change. Others of you argued that some disabled people want to have their bodies fixed, right? They want to have their pain alleviated, and this is okay. So as a class, we, we decided that combating ableist prejudice and discrimination um, does not have to mean a rejection of medicine. So um, many of us in our class settled on Tobin Sieber's theory of complex embodiment um, as maybe the perfect median between the medical and social models of disability. Siebers argues that disability is produced both by social barriers and by physical and intellectual limitations. So it's not one or the other, it's both. Moreover, Siebers argues that separating the disabilities that arise from the body and those that arise from society is pretty futile. These factors are inextricably linked. So both body limitations and social barriers work together to construct disability. At the same time, we developed this really deep and complex understanding of disability. We also thought a lot about ability, able-bodiedness, able-mindedness. Many of you were quick to realize that a preference for ability, a strong desire uh, for health and capacity, a celebration of able-bodiedness and able-mindedness able-mindedness, this pervades our lives. We are constantly encouraged to be as smart, as healthy, and as healthy as we can be. Friends and family members are celebrated when they overcome or persevere past their disabilities. And in, in our own university, we see perfection and achievement valorized. The preference for able-bodiedness and able-mindedness is really all around us. Um, but in our class, we attempted to question this desire, right? We worked um, to think in new ways. Reading works by authors who claim disability as a positive identity um, and really a valuable way of living in the world. So we read authors who pushed back and, and resisted this impulse to, to prioritize ability in their lives. In thinking about ability and disability, we also always endeavored to think intersectionally, right? So we discussed how the category of disability is deeply entwined with other social categories like race, gender, class, sexual orientation. We also discussed how ableism uh, prejudice against disability, uh, maybe even described as a preference for able-bodiedness, how ableism is deeply entwined with racism, with sexism, with classism, with other systems of inequality. In fact, um, in our class, we discussed how disability often lays at the root of these other forms of prejudice. Um, so for example, Many white Americans in the antebellum period uh, viewed Black people as physically and intellectually incapable of citizenship. White antebellum Americans viewed Black people as essentially disabled, and they used this to justify their political, social, economic inequality. By noticing these intersections between disability, race, class, gender, sexual orientation, other um, forms of oppression, we realized that combating, combating ableism um, requires also combating, combating sexism, racism, and other forms of oppression. So um, from this really uh, rich and complicated understanding of ability and disability, we moved to the study of American history. And we brought these ideas to this study. 
um, a few weeks ago, we began at the moment of contact between Native peoples and European colonists, and we moved chronologically right up to the American Revolution, um, where our class will begin today. In our class before spring break, I asked you to think about some of the most important takeaways from your study of disability in colonial America. So I said, um, what conclusions can we draw about disability during the colonial period? Here's what you said. This is from Isabel. In colonial America, we saw instances of ableism that served as the foundation of society's current understanding and association of those with disabilities. At the same time, we also saw exceptions to ableism and ways that able-bodied people and those with disabilities easily lived in harmony through a modicum of accommodation without fear of isolation and discrimination. And from Grace, disability in the colonial period was determined on one's ability to work. Physical differences alone didn't make someone disabled as the often dangerous colonial lifestyle meant that work accidents or illness left most people impaired at some point in their lives. So long as someone was able to provide for themselves, they weren't disabled. Okay, so um, today we are gonna move on to talk about disability in the early United States. As you well know, um, on July 4th, 1776, 13 American colonies ratified the Declaration of Independence, uh, officially severing their political ties to Great Britain. Um, by that point, military battles were already underway. So um, the first shots of the Revolutionary War were fired in Lexington and Concord um, in April 1775. Um, the Battle of Bunker Hill, uh, a Patriot victory was fought a few months later. So in the Declaration of Independence, um, Thomas Jefferson wrote the famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our class today, we're going to think about how this uh, original and most fundamental statement of rights came true for disabled Americans in the decades after the revolution. So were disabled people able to access these basic ideals of freedom and equality? Were they able to reap the promises of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Um, and, and importantly, you know, how did gender, race, and class change the equation? So were some disabled people able to access these rights and not others? We will also uh, importantly consider how disabled people faced with legal, political, and social barriers, how they fought back and fought for greater equality and opportunity. Um, okay, so in my lecture today, I'm gonna try to convince you of two main points. These are powerful statements and they are challenging statements. Um, and today I'm gonna to marshal evidence in their support. So the first statement is this. Our nation is rooted in ableism. In the early United States, disability served as a rationale for exclusion from the privileges and obligations of citizenship. So uh, a reminder, um, we've talked about a variety of different definitions of ableism in our class, um, but for our purposes today, ableism is the discrimination of and prejudice against people with disabilities. 
And I said, I'm going to suggest that this um, is our nation is rooted in this discrimination and prejudice. My second um, big claim today is that our nation is rooted in disability rights activism. In the early United States, disabled Americans challenged these restrictions and they fought for their rights as citizens. Okay, so um, let's go on uh, to the first, the first claim here. Let's start with how ableism shaped uh, the founding of our nation. And to demonstrate this, I'd like to focus on early national law. Um, this is a context where we can really clearly see ableism at work. The first thing to know um, when looking at American law after the revolution is that it was deeply rooted in the English legal tradition. So the revolution didn't occasion a wholesale rejection of, of English common law. Instead, it was only over the course of the early national period that jurists began to emphasize the difference between English and American law um, and that they began to use the law in new ways. So we have this English foundation. Um, let's look first at the legal definition of disability in the early national period. Um, this is the legal definition that Americans inherited from English law. Um, as a comparison today, um, the legal definition of disability would, we might look to the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, but what was the legal definition of disability in early America? Um, and here is the clearest one that I have found. And it is from Michael Dalton's The Country Justice, um, which was first published in 1618. Um, and this I'm quoting from the 1746 edition. Um, Dalton was an English jurist. Um, and he wrote this, this text, which was widely circulated in the colonies and then the New Republic. Um, it was probably the most popular legal text um, in the colonies. And here's what Dalton says. He gives us two definitions of disability. So first he talks about the person naturally disabled, either in wit or member as an idiot, lunatic, blind, lame, et cetera, not being able to work. His second definition is the person casually disabled or maimed in his body as the soldier or laborer, et cetera, maimed in their lawful colonies, callings. Okay, um, a couple of things to notice about these definitions. Um, maybe the first thing you've noticed is that uh, Dalton is not using words um, that we consider appropriate anymore, right? He's using uh, words that are, are offensive today. Um, I will let you know that idiot and lunatic, these two words had particular legal meanings in early America, um, but really uh, you might have first noticed that the words he's using are derogatory. Second, you might notice that um, Dalton is identifying a distinction based on when the person's impairment occurred. So he differentiates naturally disabled people, um, those who have impairments from birth, from what he calls casually disabled people, um, people who have acquired impairments. This distinction is important for Dalton because it determines how judges and officials uh, apply exemptions based on disability or apply exclusions or restrictions based on disability. Um, these might be uh, applied uh, intermittently, temporarily, permanently based on an individual's condition. And the third thing you might notice about Dalton's definition, uh, definitions is that what unites naturally and casually disabled people 
is their inability to work. And Grace, uh, in her statement, already alerted to, the, to us to this in the colonial period. Um, but as we discussed, an incapacity for socially expected labor was the most widely used definition of disability in the colonies, and then also in the New Republic. So disability in the colonies and the early national period, um, disabled people were those who had physical and intellectual impairments that compromised their ability to labor in the ways that were expected of them. Um, and you might already be thinking about how this would mean something different, right? The labor with, that was expected of different types of people, um, this would have meant different uh, standards, right? So um, a different standard for a wealthy white man as opposed to a poor white man, um, a free black woman as opposed to an enslaved black woman, right? So um, labor meant something different based on social, um, political, economic expectations. Um, okay, so I think I might pause for a moment uh, for questions. I don't know if anyone wants to put something in the chat. If they have any questions so far. I'll wait just a minute or so. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Meg is asking what Dalton meant by lawful callings. Um, this is a great question. So he he means um, the the mode of employment, um, right? Their occupation, right? So um, and he may have referred um, to uh, guild work, right? Which is work that your family kind of is is part of trade work over over many generations. Um, but really, I think he just means the the employment that was expected of this person. But excellent question. Okay, great. So let's move on um, and let's bring this, this definition, Dalton's definitions, to a study of early national law. Okay, we're going to move on. So again, um, my goal, um, <laughs> I'm going to move this on a second. Perfect. Great. Move my windows. Perfect. Okay. Um, so um, Remember, um, one of my uh, goals today is to suggest that disability served as a rationale for um, the exclusions, uh, sorry, rationale for exclusion from the privileges and obligations of citizenship, um, right? So that there's this ableism that is rooted in our, our early national law. Um, but what do we mean by the privileges and obligations of citizenship? Uh, you know, why do I use those words? Well, we don't think about this too often in our everyday lives, but citizenship actually entails uh, both duties that we have to the state um, and protections or rights that we receive from the state. So, um, for example, our right to trial by jury is linked to our obligation to serve on juries. Our right to enjoy protection in our defense is connected to our obligation to serve in the military or to bear arms in the nation's defense. Citizenship involves both duties or obligations that we owe to the state, as well as rights and privileges that we receive from the state. In the early United States, disabled people were excluded from both. Um, or maybe more clearly, disability served as a justification for excluding people from both civic duties and rights. Okay, so let's see how this actually worked. Here is an example of an immigration restriction um, in Delaware in 1797. Uh, this act requires, and I'm going to read from it, um, any old persons, infants, maimed, lunatic, 
or any vagabond or vagrant persons uh, who want to settle in the state. Uh, they're required to be examined by government offices, officers who are deter to determine their capacity for labor. If these newcomers are found to be unable to labor or likely to become unable to labor in the future, right, likely to come to rely on state assistance, they are ordered to be sent back to where they came from unless they can pay a surety, so a sum of money for their future support. It's important to know that immigration restrictions were not specific to Delaware. Um, so nearly all colonies and then states had similar restrictions. Um, some of them were established as early as the 17th century. As you think about this exclusion, um, you might notice the importance of labor here to the distinction of disability and to the distinction of who could settle and who could not. You might also notice how the categories of age, class, and disability are entwined, right? So disabled people were excluded just as were elderly people, poor people, and minors. Okay, here's a marriage restriction from Massachusetts in 1824. Uh, according to this act, courts can um, and really should annul marriages if one of the parties experienced idiocy or insanity at the time of the contract. Um, so intellectual incapacity invalidated a marriage contract leading to its annulment. Again, Massachusetts is not unique here. Um, marriage restrictions based on intellectual incapacity uh, date all the way back to Roman law, um, and they were implemented in early modern England and nearly all American colonies and states. Um, I will also note that there's a long history of um, marriage restrictions based on physical capacity, um, capacity for sexual intercourse um, for both men and women. Um, and these were also enforced in colonial and early national law. Again, um, it's important to think intersectionally. So this law doesn't mention it, um, but who else was excluded from marriage in the colonies? Minors, men and women under the age of consent. Also enslaved people were prohibited from marriage, right? So we're seeing the ways that disability, the category of disability can intersect with categories of um, race, uh, free slave status, um, as well as age. So here's a voting exclusion um, from Virginia in 1830. The amended constitution of Virginia excluded people of unsound mind from voting. Again, Virginia is not unique. Um, nearly all colonies and states excluded people um, deemed to be intellectually incompetent from suffrage. Um, important again to think intersectionally, right? Who else is excluded from voting? In this uh, constitution, um, people of unsound mind are um, listed along with paupers, so pe poor people who are receiving state aid, um, as well as soldiers and people convicted of crimes. Um, an unstated exclusion here, the Constitution doesn't mention it, but women also are excluded from the vote, as are Black, um, Indigenous, and enslaved people, as well as minors, right? So large numbers of people excluded, including those of unsound mind. Again, um, here is a military exclusion based on disability. And this one is from the Continental Congress in 1776. 
Um, so col colonial and state militias, uh, as well as the Continental Army, um, excluded disabled people from service. Um, so this order requires uh, recruited officers to be careful to enlist none but healthy, sound, and able-bodied men and not under 16 years of age. Um, along, in addition, um, women um, and free and enslaved Black men were excluded from the Army um, or the Continental Army um, and the latter until um, Washington was persuaded to retract their formal exemption a few years later um, because of dire military consequences. But um, race, uh, gender, and disability all are rationales for exclusion from the army. And guardianship. Um, so you may be a little bit familiar um, with guardianship um, based on uh, Britney Spears' recent court case. Um, but basically, guardianship is a total loss of legal, political, economic rights um, because of intellectual capacity, incapacity. Um, so in early America, people um, with intellectual um, as well as physical incapacities actually as well were also placed, were all placed under guardianship. Um, and not all of them, but some, some were placed under guardianship um, if their family members or other community members requested it. Um, so this act is from North Carolina in 1836. Um, those described as lunatics or idiots were assigned legal guardians um, who managed their legal, political, financial affairs. People under guardianship um, have uh, almost no legal rights outside their ability to contest their guardianship. And then this is actually quite debated in the early national period of whether you could contest to be released from guardianship. Um, again, guardianship is not limited to North Carolina. Um, it was also not limited to those deemed to be intellectually uh, or physically incapable. Minors were under the guardianship of their parents and caregivers. Uh, married women were under the guardianship of their husbands. Um, and in the early national period in many states, um, especially in the South, free Black men and women were legally required to have white male guardians. So guardianship, um, again, extends beyond disability uh, to include age, gender, and race. Um, these are just a few of the, the restrictions and exclusions that disabled people faced in the decades after the revolution. Um, other restrictions include settlement, settlement in a town, um, being able to testify in court, being able to sue, hold public office, um, your ability to pay taxes. Um, uh, for enslaved people, also the ability to be manumitted rested on their capacity. Um, of course, I can't cover all those now, um, but the last one I do want to talk about is confinement. So um, all of the restrictions that I've described to you so far um, were actually also enacted in early modern England and the American colonies. Um, these were all restrictions already in place at the time of the American Revolution um, and that early national Americans simply uh, continued. However, um, in the decades after the revolution, um, some of these exclusions based, exclusions based on disability um, also intensified. Um, and you read about this a bit in your reading for today, but um, our nation is a republic, which means that it relies on citizens being able to make reasoned political decisions. It, it also relies on the physical labor of inhabitants to make the nation productive, economically viable. As a result, in the early national period, disability and disabled people became intensely threatening. These were people whose bodies and mind 
seemed that minds seemed to be fundamentally um, unfit for citizenship, right? The fact that disabled people could not work in the language of the law seemed to threaten the entire national experiment. So in the years after the revolution, disability became especially threatening, resulting in the tightening of restrictions. Excuse me. <coughs> so this tightening is most clearly seen um, in the impulse to confine and institutionalize disabled people. Um, the actress seen on the right-hand side of your screen is from Massachusetts in 1797. Um, it orders lunatic people and those so furiously mad as to render them dangerous to this peace and safety of the good people to be confined in town or county jails and almshouses. Um, so many uh, people were confined in the next few decades um, that the state established a lunatic hospital in Worcester in 1830. By 1836, um, uh, there was kind of so many people here that the state orders idiot and lunatic or insane persons, um, including um, those who are not furiously mad to the institution. So these latter individuals did not threaten harm um, in any way, but they, again, alongside uh, those furiously mad from previously, um, they were all required to report to Worcester. Um, again, Massachusetts isn't unique here. Um, so nearly all states established asylums and institutions for disabled people in the mid 19th century. Other institutions were established too. Um, schools and asylums for um, those described as blind, deaf, and dumb, um, uh, as well as sort of those with intellectual impairments um, were established. Also, institutions for people convicted of crimes, right? More prisons um, were built, as well as more almshouses, those um, for those who are poor or who receive state aid. Um, and we're going to talk more on Thursday in, in this class about this impulse, this in institution building impulse in the early national period um, and this desire to fix or treat disability um, in conjunction with other seeming uh, social problems. Okay, I might pause just for um, one minute or two for some more questions. I don't know if anyone has anything burning here. Okay. Great, let's keep going then. Um, so um, the final part of my lecture today um, is focused on how disabled people resisted. So um, remember, um, I argued that our nation is rooted in ableism, um, but I also suggested that it is rooted in disability rights activism. Um, and I argued that in the early United States, disabled Americans challenged the restrictions they faced and fought for their rights as citizens. Um, so uh, disabled people um, fought back against all of the different exclusions that I outlined before um, and more, right? So um, they contested immigration, marriage, and voting restrictions. Um, they lied or, or simply ignored military exclusions, um, and many physically resisted confinement. So in a whole host of ways, people challenged restrictions based on disability, um, and advocated for their rights as citizens. Um, today, I wanna show you how this worked in one small case in one small community. So this is just one individual person and her story of resistance. So meet Lydia Hoops. Um, we really don't know too much about her life. Um, we think that she was born in 1785 um, and I, we do know that she lived in East Bradford, Pennsylvania. Um, in 1810, the population of East Bradford was about a thousand people. 
Um, so this is a really small, tight-knit community. In 1814, um, Avaya Hoops, who is Lydia's brother, moves to place her under guardianship for intellectual incapacity. And you'll see on the screen her his petition for her guardianship. And I'm going to read you a bit of what he, he writes. So he writes to the judge of the Court of the Common Pleas and says, for the space of three years past, Lydia has been deprived of the exercise of her rational faculties and understanding so as to be altogether incapable of governing and protecting herself or managing her affairs. Abaya went on to give a few examples of Lydia's inabilities. He says, she frequently discourses in a wild, incoherent manner, alarming her friends without cause and denying that her brothers are such and that the house she now lives in is not the house she was born in, although it is a fact that she was born in the house that she now lives in. He also suggests that she frequently tears and destroys her clothes without cause. So after uh, this initial letter, this initial assessment of her incapacities, the court orders an inquisition to evaluate her ability. So um, uh, the local sheriff summons 17, um, what he describes as good and lawful men, to evaluate her abilities. Um, these men meet with Lydia. Um, we don't know exactly know where, but maybe um, maybe her house or maybe a, a local tavern or inn. And they um, ask her a bunch of questions, right? They ask her, uh, we don't know exactly what they asked her, but it could be um, uh, about her her the names, for example, of her family members and native neighbors. Um, it might have been um, about her property, right? The land that she owns, um, the, the money that she owns. Um, they might have asked her to complete simple tax, tasks, uh, like counting to 10, writing her own name. The men soon found Lydia to be of unsound mind. And so the court placed her under the guardianship of her brother, Abaya. So under guardianship, Lydia lost all her legal, political, economic rights as a single woman. So um, she couldn't use the money she had to her own name, um, buy or sell property, make contracts, sue, testify in court. Um, she really lost some of the most basic rights of citizenship. Um, and in fact, one of the only rights that she did uh, retain is her ability to contest her guardianship. Um, and so she did. Um, in 1824, Lydia sent a petition to the Court of Common Pleas asking to be released from guardianship. In her letter to the court, she argued that she was now restored to her reason and soundness of mind. Um, and she attached three different testimonials from neighbors and townspeople. Um, and these people confirmed that Lydia was, was fully and completely um, in her senses, that she was as capable of taking care of her person and the state as she ever was. That was one someone writing. So the court launched a major investigation. They heard testimony from at least 24 men and women in the small community of East Bradford. These men and women came to court and testified about Lydia's abilities. Um, their testimonies were extraordinary detail, extraordinarily detailed. Um, they recalled past interactions with Lydia, um, their observations of her before, during her guardianship. Um, it, these uh, testimonials, they describe her clothing, um, her conduct, her conversation, um, her manners, um, and always you know, their perceptions of her ability 
uh, to manage herself and manage um, the money and the land that she owns. Residents were very divided on her case. Um, so some argued um, that she should be released from guardianship. Um, so I have one example from Amos Worthington. I'm just gonna read it to you. Um, her conduct and conversation has been much the same as any other person in the ordinary walks of life. So much so that if he, this is Amos, had not heard that she was once of unsound mind, he should not have supposed that she ever was. Other residents were um, a little bit less favorable, right? So they suggested that Lydia's mind still continued to be weak um, or, or not right. Um, Mary Kennard, for instance, explained that Lydia's whole conversation appeared light and trivial, totally different from what it was when I first know, knew her. Her conversation was not that of a rational person, Kennard concluded. So after this detailed investigation, um, the court decided that Lydia was still of unsound mind, um, and they decided that she was unfit for independence. And so she petitioned again. Um, two years later, she writes a second letter um, to the Court of Common Pleas. And this um, letter um, is quite amazing. She describes herself as grievously vexed and disquieted. She argued that at the time of the take of at the said time of taking the said inquisition, she was not of unsound mind. So she disagreed with the original inquisition's finding. She argued that she never was. I'm, quoting here, before or after taking the said inquisition, nor is she now, by reason of any unsoundness of mind, incapable of managing herself and her estate. She is capable of the governance of herself, she declared. And this time the court approved her request. We don't know what made them change their mind. Um, the court file, it doesn't contain any new testimonials from townspeople or relatives um, but Lydia obtained release from guardianship, as well as greater legal, political, and economic freedom. So um, I've concluded our lecture uh, today with Lydia's case, because I really think it exemplifies those two big points that I wanted to share with you today. First, our nation is rooted in ableism. Right? In the early United States, disability served as a rationale for exclusion from the privileges and obligations of citizenship. And finally, our nation is rooted in disability rights activism. In addition to ableism, we have this history of disability rights activism. In the early United States, disabled Americans challenged these restrictions and fought for their rights as citizens. Okay, I'll stop here um, again for any other questions if you wanna put them in the chat. And no pressure. Yeah, so Meg is asking, were guardians usually family members? Um, they were. Um, they could also be um, uh, members of the town. So sometimes community members, um, say like local officials, would place someone under guardianship. Um, uh, but primarily guardians were family members or, or close friends, neighbors. Absolutely. Yeah, great question. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you so much, everybody. Um, excellent job today. And I will see you back here on Thursday. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out our podcast, First Ladies, in their own words, using material from C-SPAN's award-winning biography series, First Ladies, and source material from C-SPAN's video library. You'll listen to First Spouses Addressing Issues, 
important to them and the country. The program includes eight modern First Ladies, from Lady Bird Johnson to Melania Trump. First Ladies, in their own words, wherever you get your podcasts.